Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershan. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave my students in the fall of 2021 on how to write introductions and conclusions. It's something that we always expect our students to be able to do, and yet I know that many of my students have told me that very few professors actually teach how to do it. So that's what this uh, podcast episode is devoted to. So this is actually the second time I've done an introductions and conclusions video. The first one I did in 2020 when we first went into lockdown from COVID. And uh, I, I was happy with the results. I've seen that there are a lot of people who have tuned in to check that video out. And that's, that made me start to think, man, I'd really like to do a better version of it because I was, I was working with new tools and trying to figure out like what would be the best way to give this information to my students. And uh, so this is, this is the revised version. I'm always saying to my students, to write is to revise. This is the revision. This is me saying, hey, you know what? That first thing was a draft and, and this, is, this is the new one. Uh, that video is still available, um, but this is my new and improved uh, introductions and conclusions. Now, um, if you haven't seen that video, um, why would you have? Uh, then you you would it would be worthwhile knowing that I used um, five textbooks. The textbook that I assign my students, a Canadian Writer's Reference, and I pulled the list of introductory strategies from that, with one exception. And then I went and saw what other books corroborated that information. And, and as we go through and we look at the various introductory strategies, uh, I'm going to be saying like, how many books? It's like, you know, it was three stars out of five. And so we've got five books. How many books out of five do these strategies get? How many times are they recommended by textbooks that are meant to teach students how to write. And the other reason that I did this is that I wanted to do what I'm always telling my students to do, which is to do your research. And so I, I have a bunch of ideas about what I think are good introductory strategies that I've accrued over the years as a writer, but are they necessarily strategies that other academics would agree with? And I'm not, you know, talking about like, I'm going to go and pull all of my colleagues because there are some really good strategies and my colleagues are like, no, 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 you should never do that. And I'm like, but it says in our textbook, the one that we all use, uh, for our intro courses that we ought to do this thing. And so I, I, I like having, as I tell my students, it's the reason we research isn't just to uh, demonstrate that we went and read something, but rather that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I'm standing on the shoulders of these giants. A Canadian Writer's Reference, the fifth edition, writing about movies, also the fifth edition, the second edition of Writing and Revising, a Portable Guide, Essay Do's and Don'ts, a Practical Guide to Essay Writing, the second edition, and the third edition of a method for writing essays about literature. So those are my five uh, references. And we're going to see, like, we're going to, you know, score it. How many books out of five? Here we go. Introductory strategies, beginning with the idea that you shouldn't write your intro first. Now, this is something that I've been telling my students for years, and I had never gone and corroborated whether or not, you know, somebody else thought this was a good idea. 
I had never gone and checked to see if anybody else thought this was a smart approach. And essay do's and don'ts, <laughs> at least one of these agrees with me. Essay do's and don'ts says this. So the Practical Guide to Essay Writing from Oxford University Press says, if you get stuck on what to say in the introduction, draft the body of your essay first. That's what we mean by don't write your intro first. It doesn't mean that your intro shouldn't go at the beginning of the essay. Sometimes students are confused when I say this to say, don't put your, don't write your your intro first, and I can see confusion on their faces. I'm not saying don't put your intro at the beginning. That's obviously where it belongs. But rather, don't try creating the greatest introduction ever and get stuck there and never move on to the body, because that's really where, you know, you're going to get the, the lion's share of your grades. Once you have the body of your essay in good shape, it is easier to see what needs to be said in the introduction. And I think that more than just finding a way to get started with our work, because we'll get bogged down in that intro. I had a student once hand in one of the most fabulous introductions I'd ever read, and then there was nothing else. And I went to them and I said, what the heck happened? Because I'm always telling my students, just hand in whatever you have. At least I can give you, you know, partial grades rather than a zero. And they said, I got so caught up in thinking about what you would think about my writing that I just kept going and revising my intro over and over again. I'm like, don't, don't care so much about what I think. I mean, yeah, I'm the guy grading your work, but you need to, you need to get you know, free of that and should have moved on. Leave the intro behind. Um, it's potentially the, one of the last things that you should work on when you're drafting. One of the last things that you should be working on when you're drafting. Instead, you should be drafting that argument. And here's the other reason, as it says in essay do's and don'ts, so it's easier to see what needs to be said in the introduction. I've had students introduce papers that they never made good on. They promise something in the intro and they don't make good on that promise. That's not a very good introduction. If you're not telling me where this essay is going to go, then it feels like, you know, I've been cheated. So I've had students promise the sun and the moon and the stars. This essay is going to, you know, solve world hunger. And then I get in there and it doesn't and I'm disappointed, right? Or it's topically relevant. Uh, and, you know, they'll say something like uh, Shakespeare is one of the greatest writers who ever lived. And then they go on to argue that Othello is a tragedy. Well, those things aren't necessary. Like your argument isn't proving what you said in the intro. You say Shakespeare is one of the greatest writers ever. And then you tell me that Othello is uh, a tragedy that those, those don't, those don't lock up. They don't have that coherence. It's, um, you know, the, the chapter, chapter eight of they say, I say, where, you know, it's spot is a good dog. He has fleas. Your whole essay has to cohere. And so what you do in your introduction has to flow into your argument. It is easier to make that happen if you know what your argument actually is. Your introduction should be interesting. I have lots of colleagues who would say, no, just give them, give me the dry facts. In the following essay, I will say, and then it's one, two, three. That's boring. Would you read it? This is a question I ask my students all the time. Would you read what you wrote? If you were in a doctor's office and the only thing sitting on the table was your essay, would you even read it? Because if you wouldn't read it, then it's not a very good introduction. You look at the introduction and it's not grabbing my attention. I don't want to read it now. It shouldn't be clickbait. It shouldn't be interesting for interest's sake. But rather, we, it, it's like our Canadian writer's reference says, Diana Hacker and Nancy Summers, you cannot assume your reader's interest in the topic. The sentences leading to your thesis should hook readers by sparking their curiosity. 
drawing them into the world of your essay. Wow. And giving them a reason to continue reading. I can imagine, you know, a number of people that I've worked with over the years going, we don't do that in academic essays. Academic essays should be dry as toast. And if your prof wants toast, give them toast. But I like jam on my toast. I like something, you know, that's tasty on my toast. So give me something interesting. Give me jam. Give me peanut butter. Give me something exciting. Okay. Because we cannot assume our reader's interest in the topic and the introduction grabs their attention. And once we've done that, then we can, we can get them to read on, right? So we want to make our introduction interesting. And Writing and Revising uh, by X.J. Kennedy et al. Uh, agrees with this. Your opening paragraph should intrigue readers, engaging their minds and hearts. And a lot of academics say we're not supposed to, you know, engage the hearts of our readers. And there are occasions, you know, if we're doing a very dry statistical paper, maybe we're not going to engage their hearts, but we ought to at least try. I mean, if education is going to be worth anything, it ought to go beyond the ivory tower. So we want to engage their minds and hearts, drawing them away from their preoccupations into the world you create in your writing. And we can create those sorts of worlds, even in academic work, even in academic work. I think especially, it should be, I should say, especially we should be creating really interesting openings. We should have interesting starts to what we have to say. Our introduction should grab our readers because this either that or what are we doing what are we doing why are we doing this work in the first place if we're not actively seeking to interest people in what we're saying so here we start with the strategies okay so a list of strategies from a canadian writer's reference that's where i, I derived it from but now we're going to see who agrees with it and the first one that we're going to look at is a surprising statistic or an unusual fact. Now, if you haven't studied stats, stay away from using statistics because you don't know how to use them. And just because there's a number doesn't mean it's a statistic, okay? Um, we can also go with an unusual fact, something that people probably wouldn't expect, like when William Sutsui says in his article... Contemporary reports stated that Japanese audience in, audiences in the first theatrical run of Gojira, Godzilla, were generally somber. That's unusual, right? We, we think of Godzilla as silly, rubber-suited monster, or, you know, silly in the sort of recent digital uh, spectacles that, that we've, ha we've had. Um, generally somber, watching the film with the gravity that its makers had intended with a number sobbing or leaving the screenings in tears. If you were to give that information to your reader at the beginning of, their, of your essay, that it that would be something interesting. They'd be like, really? People cried at a Godzilla movie? I don't understand. What the heck? And they would want to find out why. They would want to find out why. So they'd be interested in knowing, you know, where, you know, this unusual fact. Didn't know that. That the original uh, audience, the Japanese audiences in the first theatrical run of Gojira were generally somber. That's unusual. You know, that's something I think people wouldn't expect. And we get for the, um, the surprising statistic or unusual fact, two out of five books. But I mean, there are, there are other ways to phrase this sort of thing. And there is a pretty strong consensus that if you give somebody that uh, information, they're going to read on. Uh, ask a question. And it's funny to me that I got three out of five books giving me agreement on this one when I have had students tell me that their profs have told them that you don't start an essay with a question. And these books are saying you should. 
you should start an essay with a question. Really, what you're doing when you craft a question for your uh, introduction, you're often just inverting your thesis. It's a way of stating your thesis without stating it overtly. Asking a question creates a sensation in, the, in your reader's mind that there's this that, 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 that this hasn't been decided on, that they get to take the journey with you, as it were. So here's an example of this. Many believe that the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were necessary to end the war in the Pacific. What if this wasn't the case? Here's the question. Recently released documents have demonstrated that Truman and his, and his advisors knew of several very viable alternatives to ending the war. Knowing this, and here's another question, how could the Truman administration choose to unleash such a catastrophic attack on their enemy? And a third question, what was so awful about the alternatives that the bomb seemed a better choice? Now, the key to using a question in your introduction is that you have to answer that question over the course of your essay. If you don't answer a question that you have raised in the introduction, it's a terrible strategy. So you, you don't ask questions you can't answer. You don't ask questions that your essay isn't going to explore. And you make sure that by the time you get to the conclusion, you have answered those questions. Use a quotation. We get four out of five. Four out of five. Well, using a quotation is one of the, is, is, is an overused approach. I should let you know that, that students just love to use quotations. But when you use quotations, make sure that they're quotations that are, you know, from your sources or that are ultimately relevant to what you're talking about. It can't just be topical relevance because what students will often do is they will go to like quotes.com and they'll find something that some famous person who has nothing to do with their essay said about their topic. And so it sort of begins in this, like, as we know, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once said, and it's like he never talked about Godzilla or Hiroshima, so I don't know why we care. Uh, so let's not talk about, you know, poets from other periods in time or even other famous people who might have something to say. It needs to have thesis relevance, not just topical relevance. But using a quotation is a great approach. So long as it flows into the argument you're going to make. Thesis relevance, not just topical relevance. Here's the example. In her well-known 1965 essay, The Imagination of Disaster, feminist critic Susan Sontag argues that the science fiction disaster movie is, quote, an emblem of an inadequate response to the most profound dilemmas of the contemporary situation. Read that again. Uh, quote, an emblem of an in inadequate response to the most profound dilemmas of the contemporary situation. And she's speaking you know, not only about science fiction movies in general, but she's speaking about science fiction disaster movies like Gojira. While Sontag, here's the rest of that introduction, while Sontag might be right about American science fiction films in the 50s and 60s, and I'm, you know, d differentiating American science fiction films from Japanese ones, she is arguably wrong insofar as the original Japanese version of Godzilla. So you can see what I'm doing there. I'm not just throwing a quote in and being like, I can quote. You need to be able to, as we learn from They Say, I Say, frame your quotations, even in your introductory strategy, framing your, qu your quotation in a way that introduces who this person is, why she we should care what they think, and then also demonstrating that you have a mastery of that content and that this flows directly into the argument that you're about to make, which in this particular case would be to say that 
whether or not Susan Sontag is right about American science fiction films in the 50s and 60s, you don't think she's right about Gojira. So four out of five books say use a quotation, so it's a good approach. It's, it's, a, it's a good way to, you know, to, to introduce what you're doing. And then we've got provide historical background. Uh, three out of the five books agreed with this one. On the morning of August 6th, so we've got Sadeo Asada's introduction begins. This is exactly how this, this article begins. On the morning of August 6th, 1945, the B-29 Superfortress Enola Gay released a single bomb that substantially destroyed the city of Hiroshima. Its power was vividly, though inaccurately, described in the flash report transmitted from the nearby Kure Naval Station to the Navy Minister. And then he goes on to say some more things about the historical information. Now, look at what Asada's done here. Asada does not assume, even though he can assume, that his readers are probably aware that the United States bombed Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. He makes sure that in the first sentence, they know that that's the case. Never assume that your reader knows what you know, whether it be about the film history of Godzilla or the history of Hiroshima. You take the time to ensure your reader knows. Now, I'll say at this point, these introductory strategies can be paired up, but you don't have to use all of them. Because I can just imagine one of my students being like, I have to do all of this in my introduction, and then writing like a three-page introduction. No. But if you're going to provide historical background, make sure that you're providing the sort of historical background that your reader needs. Remember who you were before you entered my class. Because if you go with the approach that, you know, oh, everybody knows this, you just have to ask yourself, did you at the beginning of my course? Because if you didn't, it's probably worth including in your introduction if you're going to include historical background. These are just, these are just strategies. That, and, and you have to decide, what's the best one for my paper? I'm always saying to my students, to write is, or, writing is an evaluative process. That's what I say. Writing is an evaluative process. You have to evaluate. You can't just go, well, I'm going to throw a dart at a board and I've got all of these introductory strategies up there. Although potentially that could be a lot of fun. Um, but you don't just choose it randomly. You choose it with intention based upon the argument you intend to make. What's the best introductory strategy to get where you want to go? Next strategy, define a term or a concept. We get two out of the five going with this one, which was shocking to me. I would have thought that we'd have had more, but because this is, you know, this is a favorite as well. Not only do we have a lot of students uh, using quotations, but I get a lot of students who define terms or concepts. This one, you just have to ascertain, is this actually a term that needs defining? Like if your essay is about trees, you probably don't need to define what a tree is. But if you're, if you're taking a term and you're using it in some way that we wouldn't normally think of, then you probably need to define your terms, especially if you're going to go with Sadeo Asada's ideas about surrender and defeat. So we've got Sadeo Asada saying in his article, people often confuse defeat with surrender. And then he defines these terms. Defeat is a military fait accompli, uh, you know, where you, you have been beaten. Whereas surrender is the formal acceptance of defeat, the formal acceptance that you've been beaten by the nation's leader. That's an act of decision-making. And he differentiates those things. He says, there's no question that Japan had been defeated, but their military wasn't ready to surrender. And once we understand those terms within the context that Asada is using them, 
That helps us to understand the whole back and forth of defeat and surrender that you might use as a core concept for your essay. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, the, these are terms that we would normally think of. Like, if you're defeated, you're defeated. You give up, right? Not everybody. Not the Japanese military in World War II. They didn't. They were not ready to surrender. Uh, most of us would equate defeat with surrender, right? And he says that right off the bat. People often confuse defeat with surrender. So we have to define our terms if we're going to be using them in ways that people wouldn't normally uh, think of or, you know, uh, consider. Uh, this one, pro a problem or a controversy. And this is related to another approach that we're going to talk about in just a second. So only two out of the five think that this would be a great strategy. Um, I think it's a great strategy, but I think there are other ways to phrase this. And I think that's part of the problem is that the way that a Canadian writer's reference and essay do's and don'ts phrases this is as a problem or a controversy, rather than, as they say, I say would put it, uh, introducing a naysayer. But let's just roll with this. Uh, we introduce a problem or a controversy, and um, we've got uh, someone quoted, Walker, uh, in Alperovitz uh, here. The consensus among scholars is that the bomb was not needed to avoid an invasion of Japan. And that was controversial when Alperovitz wrote his article. The consensus among scholars is that the bomb was not needed to avoid an invasion of Japan and to end the war within a relatively short time. It is clear, says Walker, that alternatives to the bomb existed and that Truman and his advisors knew it. And Alperovitz milks that. This is, this is right up front in his introduction. He's actually quoting Walker, so he's using a strategy that we've already talked about. Um, so you can take a look at what Alperovitz does with that if you want to get a better sense of, like, how do I include and incorporate a quotation. So he... He, he takes that controversy and it drives his argument. It's actually a really good um, example of how an introduction um, can act as a focal point for where we're going to go with the, with the rest of our work. Uh, now, only writing about movies actually uses the sort of they say, I say nomenclature of uh, acknowledging your opponents. That's, that's what they, the, 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 the term, that, the way that they put it. Acknowledge your opponents. They also say you can acknowledge the people who are on your side. Um, but I wanted to talk about that naysayer concept that I was just talking about, because I think that idea of introducing controversy is to in, introduce a potential naysayer uh, as well. Sometimes the controversy drives our uh, argument, but sometimes the controversy is just meant to get us started so that we can, you know, defeat that particular perspective. Um, critics have generally judged that so we're going to use William Sutsui in this case. Sutsui, by the way, is a goldmine of introductory strategies. He uses like five or something like that. He just goes introductory strategy, introductory strategy, introductory strategy, introductory strategy before he ever gets into his argument. It's just one introductory strategy after another. I think he was really anticipating that his audience was going to be naysaying what he had to say. So he felt like he had to, to you know, uh, do deal with their defenses. Um, but we acknowledge our opponents and what they have to say. This is called conceding a point. Uh, critics have generally judged the Godzilla films to be artistically lacking, intellectually unchallenging, and ideologically hollow. So he says, critics have generally judged these things. And so here he is about to launch into a talk at an academic conference on Godzilla. And he comes right out and says, oh, by the way, critics think this stuff is crap. Um, that's acknowledging what our opponents have to say. Now, you don't want to do this if you can't defeat them later in the essay. But 
if you can, if you've already written the essay and you know that you would, uh, you deal with these things, then using that content in your introduction isn't a bad way to go. Donald Ritchie, the Dean of American Film Critics of Japan, once damned Japanese cinema as a quote, and here we see William Satsui combining acknowledge your opponents with using a quotation, uh, as a plethora of nudity, teenage heroes, science fiction, monsters, animated cartoons, and pictures about cute animals. <clears throat> Use a vivid example or an image. Two out of the five. Two out of the five. In the final moments of Godzilla, a brilliant... This is the beginning of Steve Rifle's Godzilla's footprint, and he just gives us the image from the film. In the final moments of Godzilla, a brilliant and tormented physicist awkwardly dons diving gear and plunges to the bottom of Tokyo Bay, cradling in his arms a miniature doomsday weapon housed in a metal and glass cylinder. Standing on the ocean floor, the scientist pauses a moment and comes face to face with death in the form of a 150-foot-tall prehistoric monstrosity. Soft requiem strains are heard as man and creature float weightlessly in the depths. Two innocent victims, I love this sentence, two innocent victims of the nuclear age, their fates intertwined. Such a, such a great start to Rifle's essay. But that is, that's vivid imagery, right? And what you, you can use examples of whatever it is that you're going to talk about later on, but in this particular case, we just have uh, the vivid imagery of the film starting off. It's Rifle's strategy because he knows that what people expect from Godzilla certainly isn't soft requiem strains. It isn't the idea of the uh, scientist who's going to blow the monster up being somehow or sharing some form of kinship with the monster, this idea of their fates being intertwined. That's not something I think that we normally associate with Godzilla. So using a vivid example or an image, great strategy. Using an anecdote, using an anecdote, uh, telling a story. That's what we're doing when we're using an anecdote. You tell a story that you know. Maybe you know a story of what somebody else has experienced, or maybe in this particular case, it's your actual story like yours, yours in particular. Uh, I used this strategy when I wrote an article about Godzilla for a fanzine called Journey Planet. And um, I talked about how my grandfather introduced me to Godzilla, uh, not by telling me what the actual movie was called, but by calling it Godzilla versus the two giant caterpillars. Because uh, if he just said, we're going to watch Godzilla versus the thing, I'd be like, I don't know what any of those words mean. Um, I was five. And, uh, and so what he did is he sort of, he, he got me warmed up to the idea by saying giant caterpillars. And I was like, giant caterpillars, that sounds amazing. I mean, because, you know, as a kid, I like bugs, uh, giant bugs sounds great. Don't know what a Godzilla is, but let's do this. Um, you might use an anecdote, tell a story based in what your response initially was to finding out that our course was going to involve Godzilla. You might say, when I learned my topic for my first university English course was going to be Godzilla, I'll admit I was unsure this was the class for me, right? That's anecdotal. You could say, I wasn't quite sure about that. The thing that we need to be careful with when we're using anecdotes is that we not go too far. Because if there's one thing we love to do, it's talk about ourselves. And if we get the opportunity to start telling a story, we just want to keep going. And that's an easy way to write a research essay, but it's not really research. And in the end, you're not getting your homework done. So again, I go back to the very beginning and say, like, write the essay first. Know where you're at in terms of your word count, and then you know how much room you have to craft your introduction, to craft the anecdotal uh, opening. You might say, I watched, you know, Godzilla vs. Kong earlier this year, and I thought it was dopey and stupid, and I had a good time, but... 
I never thought I'd be studying it in a university class. That's an anecdote, right? That's a story. That's us telling what, we, what we've experienced. And uh, that's a three out of five. Three out of five books recommend that. And that's introductions. Now, something that... Um, introductory strategies. Anyway, uh, XJ Kennedy and his crew in writing and revising a portable guide talk about a few strategies just for what we're doing with an introduction. What's the purpose of an introduction? And he asks these in the form of questions, but these are some of the things that we're trying to do in an introduction. We are trying to narrow down our focus. We are trying to prepare a reader for what's coming next and ultimately craft a necessary prelude to our content. If we just launch into our argument, our reader will be lost. We need to guide them into our argument. We need to guide them into our argument. And then when we finish, because now you're like, well, what about conclusions, Dr. Prashant? You know, this is interesting, uh, doing introductions, but how do we do conclusions? Well, first and foremost, don't just summarize what you've said. You wrote five pages of content. That takes roughly seven to ten minutes to read out loud. There's no way your reader's forgotten everything you've said. If you've done your job, you don't need to summarize or reiterate what you've said. Essay Do's and Don'ts says don't just summarize, don't just reiterate, That's not enough. It's a rudimentary way of concluding your work. It's a great approach if you wrote a book, but you didn't write a book. You wrote an essay, and it's only five to six pages long. The only time I think you should get around to summarizing and reiterating is once you're writing stuff that runs about 20 pages. And you're probably not going to do that in your undergraduate. So you don't need to use that approach anymore. You do not need to summarize or reiterate what you've already said when your content is this brief. So what should you do instead? Essay Do's and Don'ts talks about a concept called correspondence. You used to think about what correspondence used to mean. We used to talk about corresponding with people via letters. I've been corresponding with so-and-so. They're from another province or country. They're my pen pal across the world. And this is, this is correspondence. But correspondence is also about the idea that things correspond or that they have some sort of connection. And this is, this is crucial, is that our conclusion should not be a completely different strategy from our introduction. A lot of students will get to writing their conclusion and they say, I just don't have anything more to say. And I'm like, did you go back and sort of echo what your conclusion was about? And they like, why would I do that? Because it creates correspondence. Canadian Writers Reference says that we should echo our intro strategy. We should sort of give a callback to it. The most basic version that I can give you of this is if you ask a question... In your introduction, you should supply the answer, if you haven't already, in your conclusion. Or if you have an anecdote in your introduction, maybe don't tell the whole story. Maybe save some of it for the end. Come back around to that story. And what that signals to your reader is we're putting the landing gear down. This plane is about to hit the runway. This journey is almost over. That's what that's what you're communicating. So echoing your introductory strategy. And... There simply isn't a better voice of how to what what we're doing there than Karen Karen Goxick's, uh wonderful statement about this in writing about movies. This is what she says: Just as the introduction sought to place the paper in the larger ongoing conversation about the topic, 
so should the conclusion insist on returning readers to that ongoing conversation, but with the feeling that they've learned something more. The ongoing conversation of they say, I say, that our argument is about entering into a conversation with what other scholars, other thinkers, other experts, other people have already said about our topic. We reference them throughout our paper, but we find a way to guide our readers into that conversation. We're inviting them in. If we imagine that the research paper is like walking through a party and entering a conversation, then our paper is us extending a hand to other people to say, why don't you come into this conversation too? So we invite them in, and then at the end, we return and sort of say like, what do you think? What have you learned? Right? So we are giving our reader a sense of what I always say to my students is closure. We bring a sense of closure. If you get to the end of your essay and you go, you pick what you decide from what I've just told you. That's not a conclusion. That's not closure. Just as the introduction sought to place the paper in the larger ongoing conversation about the topic, so should the conclusion insist on returning readers to that ongoing conversation, but with the feeling that they've learned something more. Crafting our conclusions in a way that echoes our introductory strategy, that means that your concluding strategy is effectively your introductory strategy, and you're just bringing a sense of closure, a sense of the feeling that, you know, you've taught your reader something more at the end of your essay. <laughs>